Matthew chapter 26 verses 1 through 25 verses 1 through 5 And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings he said unto his disciples ye know that after 2 days is the feast of the passover and the son of man is betrayed to be crucified then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. Burkett notes, Several things are here observable, as one, the persons conspiring against our blessed Redeemer's life, namely chief priests and scribes and elders, that is, the whole Sahedrim, or general council of the Jewish church, These lay their malicious heads together to contrive the destruction of the innocent Jesus. Here was a general council of them, consisting of priests, doctors, and elders, with the high priest, their president, yet erring in a point of doctrine concerning the Messiah, not believing Jesus to be the Son of God, notwithstanding all the convincing miracles which he had wrought before them. Observe, too, the manner of this conspiracy against our Savior's life. It was clandestine secret and subtle. They consulted how they might take him by subtlety and kill him. Learn hence that Satan makes use of the subtlety of crafty men and abuse their parts as well as their power for his own purposes. Satan never sends a fool on his errand. Observe three, the time when this conspiracy was managed, at the time of the Passover. Indeed, at first the chief priests did not incline to that time, fearing a tumult and uproar among the people. But Judas, presenting them with a fair opportunity to apprehend him, they changed their purpose, and accordingly, at the feast of the Passover, our Savior suffered. This was not without a mystery, that Christ, the true Lamb of God, whom the Paschal Lamb typified and represented, should be offered up at the feast of the Passover, signifying thereby that he was the true Paschal Lamb, and that the legal shadow ought to cease in the exhibition of him. Learn hence, that not only the death of Christ in general, but all the circumstances relating to it, were foreordained of God himself, as the place where, at Jerusalem, the time when, at the time of Passover, that time did God devise best for this lamb to be sacrificed. Verses 6 and 7. Now, when Jesus was in Bethlehem, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box, a very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Burkett notes, This woman, St. John says, was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who, to show her love to Christ and put honor upon him, took a precious box of ointment and poured it upon our Savior's head, according to the custom of the eastern countries, who used so to do at their feasts and banquets, to which David alludes, Psalm 23.5. Learn hence, 1 that where true love to Christ prevails in the heart, nothing is adjudged too dear for Christ. This box of ointment, murmuring Judas valued at 300 pence, which, reckoning the Roman penny at 7 pence half penny, makes our money 9 pounds, 7 shillings, and 6 pence. Love, we see, spares no cost, but where the esteem of Christ is high, the affection will be strong. Note 2 that where strong love prevails towards Jesus Christ, it suffers not itself to be outshined by any examples. 
The weakest woman that strongly loves Jesus Christ will piously strive with the greatest apostle to express the fervor of her love unto him. I do not find any of the apostles at so much cost to put honor upon Christ as this poor woman was at. Love knows no bounds, no measures. Verses 8 and 9. But when his disciples saw it, they had indignation, saying, To what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been sold for much and given to the poor. Burkett notes, That is, when Judas and some of the other disciples, whom he had influenced, saw this action, they murmured. Particularly Judas blamed this holy woman for needless prodigality and did tacitly reflect upon Christ himself for suffering that wasteful expense. Oh, how doth the covetous heart think everything too good for Christ! He that sees a pious action well done and seeks to undervalue it, shows himself possessed with a spirit of envy. Judas's invidious spirit makes him censure an action which Christ highly approved. Learn hence that men who know not our hearts may, through ignorance or prejudice, censure and condemn those actions which God doth commend and will graciously reward. Happy for this poor woman that she had a more righteous judge to pass sentence upon her action than wicked Judas. Verses 10 through 12. When Jesus understood it, he said unto them, Why trouble you, the woman? For she hath wrought a good work upon me. For ye have the poor always with you, but ye have me not always with you. For in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Burkett notes, Observe here how readily our Lord vindicates this good woman. She says nothing for herself, nor need she, having such an advocate. One, Christ rebukes Judas. Why trouble ye the woman? Plainly intimating that it is no small trouble to a gracious spirit to find their good work misinterpreted and misrepresented. Next, he defends the action, calling it a good work, because done out of a principle of love to Christ. She hath wrought a good work upon me. And lastly, he gives the reason for her action. She did it for my burial. As kings and great persons were wont in those eastern countries, at their funerals, to be embalmed with odors and sweet perfumes, so, says our Savior, this woman, to declare her faith in me as her king and lord, doth with this box of ointment, as it were beforehand, embalm my body for its burial. True faith puts honor upon a crucified as well as a glorified Savior. This woman accounts Christ worthy of all honor in his death, believing it would be a sweet-smelling sacrifice unto God, and the Savior of life unto his people. Observe farther from these words, But me ye have not always. The doctrine of transubstantiation is overthrown. For if Christ be, as to soul, body, and divinity, perpetually present in the host among those of the Church of Rome, then have they Christ always with them, contrary to what our Savior here declares. Though his poor members would always be present with them, yet he himself should not be so. The poor we have always, but me ye have not always. Verse 13. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman hath done, be told for a memorial of her. Burkett notes. Our Savior, having defended this holy woman from the calumny of Judas in the foregoing verses, in this he declares that she should be rewarded with an honorable memorial in all ages of the church. Wheresoever this gospel is preached, this shall be spoken of her. Oh, what care doth Christ take 
to have the good deeds of his children not buried in the dust with them, but be had in everlasting remembrance. Though sin causes men to rot above ground, to stink alive, and when they are dead, leave an inglorious memory upon their graves, yet will the action of the just smell sweet and blossom in the dust. Learn hence, that we may laudably prosecute that which will procure us a good name and spread our reputation to future ages. Verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went into the chief priests, and said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the person betraying our blessed Redeemer, Judas. Judas, a professor. Judas, a preacher. Judas, an apostle. And one of the twelve, whom Christ had chosen out of the world to be his dearest friends and his own family and household. Shall we wonder to find friends unfriendly and unfaithful towards us when our Savior had a traitor in his own house? Observe, too, the heinousness of his sin in betraying Christ. He betrayed Christ Jesus, a man, Christ Jesus, his master, Christ Jesus, his maker. The first was murder, the second, treason. Learn thence that it is no strange or uncommon thing for the vilest of sins and the most horrid impieties to be acted by such persons as make the most eminent profession of holiness and religion. Observe three. What was the sin occasioning and leading Judas to committing of this horrid sin? It was covetousness. I do not find that Judas had any particular malice against Christ's person, but a base and unworthy spirit of covetousness possessed him. This made him sell his master. Covetousness is a root sin, an inordinate desire and love of riches, an eager and insatiable thirst after the world, is the parent of the monstrous and unnatural sins. Therefore, remember we our Savior's caution, Luke twelve fifteen. Take heed and beware of covetousness. He doubles the caution to show us both the great danger of the sin and the great care we ought to take to preserve ourselves from it. Observe 4. How small a sum tempted the covetous mind of Judas to betray his master. 30 pieces of silver, which amounted but to 3 pounds 15 shillings of our money. This was the price of a slave or a common servant. Exodus 21. As Christ took upon him the form of a servant, so his life was valued at the rate of an ordinary servant's life. It may seem a wonder that the high priest should offer no more for the life of our Savior, and that Judas should accept so little, seeing that his covetousness was so great, and their rage so grievous. How comes it to pass that he demands so little, and that they offer no more? Had the reward been proportioned to the greatness of their malice, it had been thirty thousand, rather than thirty pieces of silver. But the scripture must be fulfilled. Accordingly, the wisdom of God overruled this matter for fulfilling that prophecy. Zechariah 11.12 They weighed for my price thirty pieces of silver. Let not any Christian be concerned that he is despised and undervalued. He can never meet with so great a reproach, so low an abasement for Christ as Christ underwent for him. Observe lastly, Judas's folly, as well as treachery, he that might have demanded what he pleased for this purchase. He says unto the chief priest, What will ye give me? As if he'd said, I'm resolved to sell him at any rate. Give me what you will for him. Nay, farther, Judas covenanted, and they promised, 
but whether it was now paid appeareth not. Learn that such a person as has a vile and base esteem of Jesus Christ will part with him upon any terms. The bare expectation of a few shekels of silver will make such a one willing to part with a pearl of great price. Wonder not, then, to see some person selling their country, their friends, their God, and their religion for money. Judas did so before them. Verses 17 through 19. Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Burkett Notes The time for the celebration of the Passover being now at hand, Christ sends two of his disciples to Jerusalem to prepare things necessary in order thereunto. Accordingly, they enter the city and find the master of a house, whose heart Christ, by his divine power, had so inclined that he willingly accommodated them upon this occasion. Our blessed Savior had not a lamb of his own, and possibly no money in his purse to buy one. But he finds as excellent accommodation in this poor man's house as if he'd dwelt in Ahab's ivory palace and had had the provisions of Solomon's table. Learn hence that Christ has such an influence upon and command over the spirits of men that he can incline them to do whatever service soever he pleases for them. When Christ has a Passover to celebrate, he will prepare a house and dispose the heart to a free reception of himself. Learn, too, that Christ, being under the law, observes and keeps the law of the Passover. Thus he fulfills all righteousness. And although the ceremonial law was to receive its abolishment in the death of Christ, yet all the time of his life he punctually observes it. Verse 20. Now, when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. Burkett notes, Observe here, the impudent forehead of this bold traitor Judas, who is presumed, as soon as he is sold as master, to sit down at the table with him and partake with the other disciples of the solemn ordinance of the Passover. Had the presence of Judas polluted the ordinance to any besides himself, doubtless our Savior would never have permitted this bold intrusion. Learn hence, one, that nothing is more ordinary than for unholy persons presumptuously to rush in upon the solemn ordinances of God, which they have no right, while such, to partake of. Two, that the presence of such persons pollutes the ordinance only to themselves. Holy persons are not polluted by the sins of such. For the pure, all things are pure. Verse 21. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Burkett notes, What an astonishing word was this. One of you, my disciples, shall betray me. Can any church on earth expect purity in all its members when Christ's own family of twelve had a traitor and a devil in it? Yet though it was very sad to hear that one should betray him, it was matter of joy that it was but one. One hypocrite in a congregation is too much, but there is cause for rejoicing if there be no more. But why did not Christ name Judas and say, Thou art he that shall betray me? doubtless to draw him to repentance and to prevent giving Judas any provocation. Lord, how sad it is for such as pretend friendship to Christ and call themselves of his family and acquaintance, who eat of his bread and yet lift up their heel against him. Verse 22. 
And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Burkett notes, observe here, one, the disciples' sorrow, and next the effect of that sorrow. Their sorrow was, as well it might, exceeding great. Well might innocent disciples be overwhelmed with sorrow to hear that their master should die, that he should die by treason, that the traitor should be one of themselves. Two, but though their sorrow was great, yet was the effect of their sorrow very good. It wrought in them a holy suspicion of themselves, and caused everyone to search himself, and say, Master, is it I? Thence learn that it is possible for such secret wickedness to lurk in our hearts as we never suspected, which time and temptation may draw forth in such a manner as we could not believe. And therefore it is both wise and holy to suspect ourselves, and to be often saying, Lord, is it I? There is no better preservative from sin than to be jealous over ourselves with a godly jealousy. Observe farther that though the disciples' fear and sorrow made them jealous and suspicious, yet was it of themselves, not of one another, nay, not of Judas himself. Every one said, Master, is it I? Not, Master, is it Judas? Learn, thence that true sincerity and Christian charity will make us more suspicious of ourselves than of any other person whatsoever. It always hopes the best of others and fears the worst concerning ourselves. Verses 23 through 25. And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Burkett notes, Here our Savior acquaints his disciples who it was that had designed his death, even he that dipped with him in the dish, or he to whom he gave the sop. Observe the traitor whom Christ less loved, he has the sop given to him. Other disciples whom Christ loved better had no such particular boon. Outward good things are not always given to the children of men in love, but are sometimes bestowed in displeasure. There is no measuring Christ's affection by temporal blessings no concluding either love or hatred by these things. Observe farther how Judas could sit still and hear the threats of judgment denounced against him without concern. He hears Christ say, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, and is no more blanked than innocence itself. Resolved sinners run on desperately in their wicked courses and with open eyes and meet their own destruction and are neither dismayed at it nor concerned about it. Observe farther that this shameless man had the impudence to say to Christ, Master, is it I? Our Savior gives him a direct affirmation. Thou hast said it. Did Judas think he blush and cast down his guilty eyes and let fall his drooping head at so galling an intimation? Nothing less. Lord, how does obduracy and sin steal the brow and make it incapable of all relenting impressions? Observe lastly, how Christ prefers non-entity before damnation. It had been better for that man if he had never been born. A temporal miserable being is not worse than no being, but an eternal miserable being is worse than no being at all. Eternal misery is much worse than non-entity. It had been better for Judas if he had never been born than to commit such a sin and lie under such wrath and that everlasting. 
Oh, better to have no being than not to have being in Christ. <laughs>